country trees you know we can Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, host of this podcast series, which is brought to you by the International Society of Arboriculture and the Bartlett Tree Expert Company. Today's podcast is by Dr. Jim Downer. He's from the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources, where he serves as a Cooperative Extension uh, Horticulture Advisor in Ventura County. He will be speaking on A Tale of Two Urban Forests, Horse Chestnuts in Kiev and Chernobyl. Uh, this presentation examines the post-apocalyptic zone in Parapet, Ukraine, with a similar population of trees in Kiev, Ukraine. Hi, this is Jim Downer, and I'm here today remotely in Portal, Arizona, to give you a lecture on my adventures in Ukraine. And I want to also Note that my co-author here, John Carlick, is also an extension agent in California. So uh, as we go through the presentation, I'll give you a little bit more background on how we came to go to Chernobyl and why we went there. But uh, one of the most iconic uh, pieces of art in the town of Chernobyl is this statue here that appears to be made of uh, fuel rods from the exploded reactor, or at least that's the impression you get. It's called the Third Angel, and it's uh, at the Wormwood Star Memorial in the town of Chernobyl that is an actual museum to the disaster and, and everything that happened there. The, the whole concept of this statue comes from scripture, from Revelation, and you can go look up that passage and, and read about some of the the things from scripture that sort of resonate very well with what happened in Ukraine. <clears throat> so as an overview, we're gonna talk a little bit about radioactivity because it's so important in understanding this, a little bit about the incident and then our recent travels from 2012 to 2018. And finally, the comparisons that we make between the forests, urban forests of Kiev and Pripyat. So first off, there are three kinds of radiation. There's, and these all result from the decay of radioactive elements. Uh, and these may be naturally occurring or not, but in this case, naturally occurring. And some that occurred in the explosion, not naturally occurring. But the most innocuous and, and harmless of these would be alpha decay. And this is where a nucleus ejects an alpha particle. This sort of radioactive decay barely has the power to go through a sheet of paper and doesn't have much impact on biology. Uh, beta decay is where a nucleus emits an electron or a positron and a type of neutrino. Protons can become neutrons and vice versa and the elements transmute. So they change from one element to another. And the atomic number changes. This sort of decay is also less powerful than gamma radiation, but because some of the elements actually bond biologically with animals, it can be quite destructive if it's incorporated into animal tissues. 
gamma radiation is the most severe form of radiation, and it's the one we all worry about. Uh, we are bombarded by gamma radiation every day as um, gamma rays enter our atmosphere, and some of them make it all the way to the to the Earth. And so, <clears throat> gamma rays are high-energy photons. They're emitted from a nucleus, and they're involved in the transmutation of elements and also in uh, causing biological defects such as cancer. So to understand nuclear physics and nuclear reactors, we have to understand what's actually going on with uh, inside of a nuclear reactor. And usually the, the fuel is uranium. And in this diagram, we're showing uranium-235. And we see a neutron hits this uranium uh, uh, nucleus. And the neutrons and protons are smashed apart and when the nucleus breaks apart, different elements are formed. And so we see a barium and a krypton form. And as a result of this uh, fission, three more neutrons are released. And they're able to hit three more uranium atoms and create more krypton and barium and sometimes some rubidium and some strontium or some cesium or some xenon. And then all of these interactions reduce or produce many more neutrons, which are then able to hit many more uranium atoms. And so you can see that if this reaction is uncontrolled, it would, it would lead to massive destruction. And that's what happens in nuclear bombs and occasionally has happened in nuclear reactors. So in this case, in Ukraine, this is an image from right after the explosion of reactor number four. This occurred in April of 1986, over 35 years ago now, and it was the worst nuclear power plant disaster in the history of mankind and still remains so, even worse than Fukushima, uh, even though Fukushima continues to evolve. The containment of this disaster required 500,000 workers at 18 billion rubles in that day of Russian money. Uh, but the expense has gone way beyond that into modern times as the cleanup continues even at this time. The disaster occurred due to design and human error during a test of cooling pumps and backup power systems and uh, ultimately resulted in a steam explosion that sent the core of the reactor through the roof of the reactor building and then back down again. And here you can see a landscape view recently, this is from 2012 or so, of the remaining power stations one and two and three, is three is right about here and four is here with this building that's been put over it. And so this is the so-called sarcophagus that contains the exploded uh, reactor number four in Ukraine. There was an enormous release of radiation and radioactive particles uh, or radionuclides, if you will. Uh, about 200 times that of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs combined, 10 times that of the Fukushima accident, and many, many different nuclides were released initially, uh, some of them being iodine, strontium, cesium, et cetera. 
I'm not going to go into the nuclear physics of, of decay, but uh, some, some of you may know that some elements decay very rapidly, like iodine in a matter of, matter of days. Radioactive iodine goes away. Uh, but other elements like plutonium are around for approximately 20,000 years is their half-life. So initially, there is enough radiation released and a lot of it in forms of gas, such as xenon and iodine and others, uh, to increase the background radiation of the planet by 2%. And that is a huge amount of radiation. Now, a bunch of that has deteriorated because the half-life was days. And so what we're left with then are the longer lived radionuclides like strontium and cesium and plutonium that are still around in the area today. So namely strontium and cesium, uh, high amounts of them were released and their half-life is 30 years. So half of their radioactivity is gone. So this is a little map that uh, the tour company we use gives to their participants to show where they've been. And it's kind of nice because it puts it in perspective uh, for audiences here. So we're gonna talk about the town of Pripyat, which was the place where workers lived that were maintaining the nuclear power plant system. And uh, it, it's good to see what the relative distances are. So here's Pripyat town and here's the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And the actual town of Chernobyl is way down here. It's several kilometers away. Uh, the Chernobyl town is actually very old. It's about a thousand years old. And uh, it's also abandoned because of its proximity to the, to the reactor. The thing to know though, is that back in the day, Pripyat, in 1985 or so was considered the premier town to live in if you were uh, a good comrade of the Soviet Union. It was modern, it was new, they had uh, a, a performing arts center, they had huge public pool, they had movies, they had everything. And uh, there were roughly 50,000 people there. And after the explosion, of course, the radiation was spread on the wind and very atypically for that time, the wind was blowing from the east to the west. And so what developed in Ukraine was a radiation trace. And this is called the Western radiation trace because it spreads again from east to west. And the darker colors indicate increased radiation, both diagrams basically showing you the same thing. And as you go north into Belarus, you also see it was heavily contaminated. And this area of Belarus is off limits even today. It's just a, a wild forest. But the disaster at the Chernobyl complex offers a very unique study opportunity, I think, and which is what uh, Dr. Karlick and I have tried to do. Um, this image is from our recent visit, last visit in 2018. We were going to go again in 2020, but the pandemic kind of stopped us. And so we were not able to go in 2020. But by 2018, you see this gigantic arch has been placed over the reactor. And this is the largest freestanding man-made arch in the world. 
and it provides a platform for deconstruction of the reactor as well as protection of the reactor from elements. And so this is a distance of many kilometers from, or about a kilometer from Pripyat here to, to the reactor. So the new urban forest of Pripyat was just like the town. It was um, well done, uh, planted consistently all through the town. It was young and it was abandoned. And suddenly and abruptly in 1986, when all 50,000 inhabitants of Pripyat were bussed out within one to two days. And so uh, people at that time were told that they, it was just a temporary thing, they would all be back. But of course, we know that the town was uh, permanently abandoned and 30 to 35 years of abandonment, abandonment ensued, depending upon what year we talk about us being there. The resident trees in the urban forest were then invaded by the encroaching species from the surrounding forest. And uh, you can see many different kinds of trees here, but uh, most of these were not planted. They've just grown up in the city. So we're gonna bounce back to Kiev now and talk a little bit about the capital city of Ukraine. And it really is a gorgeous city and has an amazing culture. And um, uh, it's, it's a wonderful place to visit. Once the pandemic is over, I would encourage anybody who has this interest to go there and see Ukraine because it's, it's incredible. But unfortunately it has some of the things that we we don't admire in an urban forest. It's very low diversity. Uh, we basically have poplars in the center of streets and horse chestnuts on the sides of streets. And this brown tree over here is a horse chestnut tree. And it's brown because they suffer from a leaf miner disease that's pretty much epidemic in Europe. Uh, trees tend to be not well maintained. And in the streets, they tend to be attacked quite a bit by maintenance workers. And in the larger parks, they're, they're more let go. So here we see a park in Kiev, and it's a spectacular image of, of a park with trees that are just let to grow. And these were uh, magnolias blooming in the spring, really a stunning scene. And in these larger urban areas where there's no risk of anything falling on a person, the trees don't get pruned. They're, they're left to attain their mature and natural form. And they can be, as I say, quite stunning. So the pruning practices in Ukraine are really quite draconian in my opinion. The urban forest is pruned aggressively and uh, the equipment is neither high tech nor modern and the approaches are the same. And so we see in the city incredible damage to trees. And it, it struck me that this would be interesting to compare these two forests. How have the trees in Pripyat fared in absence of these rather draconian tree maintenance practices compared to those in the capital of Kiev? And what we see really is the effect of stress in this urban life. Trees that are in a park or an open area, this is a park tree, this is a horse chestnut in a park, doing fairly well. And on the very same day, this tree in a, a street planting pit, struggling mightily from 
um, leaf minor damage and a chestnut, a kind of European chestnut blight that affects horse chestnuts there. So the urban stresses are, are difficult. They're compounded by the various maintenance practices and um, lack of space, I think, to really do well in the city. Infrastructure is harsh, uh, compaction, lack of rooting space, lack of irrigation, de-icing salts, all of these things weigh heavily on urban trees, restriction of root volume, and of course, no mulch and no litter fall. So litter fall and kev matters not because there's nowhere for it to accumulate and nobody's gonna let it accumulate. So there's no natural organic matter system inputs to these trees. And we see workers in Kiev are very diligent about sweeping. They're always sweeping and removing the, the leaves. And in these street tree scenes, there's nowhere for mulch to be anyway. So these trees cannot derive the benefit of mulch. And tree car conflicts in Ukraine are incredible. I'd never seen a city where cars are allowed to do whatever they want. Uh, they park right on the sidewalks and they drive over the tree wells, compacting the soil. So this again is just another insult and another pressure that are placed on the urban lives of trees in this capital city. So as we go to the, the Chernobyl zone, we notice that Time has changed the look of things there. In 1986, or shortly after 1986, the sarcophagus was completed with uh, the efforts of 500,000 Red Army soldiers that donated their lifetime exposure to radiation to, to create that thing. And then in 2012 was our first visit, Dr. Carla Kieran Red. And you can see there's still work going on with the sarcophagus because its roof was leaking by then. And so there's work to try to repair this. And even as you stand here at this memorial and the statue, the radiation levels in this place are, are way above uh, normal compared to uh, if you were a mile away or something. So it's still very contaminated and very radioactive. And here we are in 2018, and the modern uh, arch structure has been put over, has been put over the sarcophagus, and uh, this is rated for 100 years, and it's made of stainless steel, and there's a hope that within 100 years, somebody's going to figure out how to take this all apart safely and prevent further contamination of the Dnipro River, which is nearby. So when this happened in 1986, uh, the then Soviet Union created two exclusion zones, one at 10 kilometers, which we see in the darker green color, and one at 30 kilometers, and, or, or 20, yeah, 30 kilometers, about 30 kilometers. And this zone has checkpoints. So all the roads going in are military checkpoints, which are maintained even today. You have to have your paperwork in order to go there, even if you're uh, visiting the zone as a tourist. 
And uh, in 2011, Ukraine opened the sealed zone around Chernobyl to anyone who wished to visit it and see the landscape there. By 2012, my colleague and I uh, had scheduled our first visit. And this was an initial visit to see what's going on. And later on, we, we got ideas about how, how we might study things there. So we returned in 2015, 2016, and 2018. And during those years, we made some measurements of, of horse chestnuts. So just taking a look at the forest from inside of buildings, these are abandoned buildings in Pripyat, the worker's town. You can see the impact the forest has had. It has grown up, it has invaded. It has taken over every space between every building in the city. And the forest is vital and vigorous. It continues to grow with some species growing faster than others, but invading every aspect of Pripyat. And it's we know from images that we have from 1986 that it's, it's dramatically changed. And this has become an emblematic place to understand how nature can overcome man's disasters. And so we have the worst nuclear accident in the history of mankind, but the forest has the ability to deal with this and grow very well. So the forest in Pripyat is now 34, 35 years old. And so all these trees you see are, are relatively new. And this is the result of maybe, well, closer to 30, 36 years of, of growth now of this forest. And it's lush, vigorous, doing very well. And as the forest encroaches, trees invade the buildings, causing their ruin. And we see this all through the workers' town. And indeed, Buildings that I visited in 2012, such as this one on the far right, which is a high school, I walked through these rooms up here in 2012. And now today this is condemned to the point where visitors can't go in this building. And what has happened is the tree roots have grown on the roof and between the walls and separated the walls the, from the floor and just caused these massive cave-ins. And so, Within 30 years, these buildings, these concrete bunker-like Soviet-era buildings have been destroyed by the encroaching forest, which to me is really quite astounding. The fact that nature can take back this city so fast. And so what seems to be surviving best there in Pripyat are the 16 floor apartment buildings. Uh, they're just really solid and so far they none of those have been taken down by the forest. So this is some art that I saw in Pripyat that was tiled on the side of a small building and it, it so struck me because uh, birches are common uh, species in Europe and were used ornamentally there in Pripyat and the stick figure would imply, you know, topping cuts here, uh, like that one. And, you know, it's interesting because the forest in Pripyat did not 
get to grow far enough to need any of this kind of pruning. And so none of it was ever done. We have a forest that grew in 30, well, it's, they planted it somewhat in the 70s. So the forest is maybe 45 years old or somewhere in that range of 40 to 45 years old. And it never was at a point when people were occupying the city that management through pruning was much of an issue. So again, looking out of an abandoned building into the, the environment around Pripyat, we see that the forest has become the dominant feature. And more recently, people have come into the zone and, and the graffiti is interesting. One image here celebrating the return of nature, two, two main themes here. The other image portraying the, the fear of radiation. And in Ukraine, if you go talk to somebody in Kiev or, or anybody in Ukraine, you ask them, have they been to, to Chernobyl? They look at you with a weird look and go, oh no, it's too frightening. We wouldn't ever wanna go there. And so, most people in Ukraine are, are deathly afraid of this experience. They don't want to go to Chernobyl, but adventurous Ukrainians have gone there. They largely looted the city and stole anything of value. Um, and then artists have come in to do these kinds of graffiti, which are, are really quite a statement actually of the two basic effects of the Chernobyl disaster, one to frighten everybody with radiation, and the other that nature is coming back in this area and has become such an ecological preserve. And indeed, uh, there is an ecological preserve there and it is managed by scientists. So in our little study, uh, it's mainly observational because we're not allowed to really take samples away. Um, we did things we could look, look at or measure directly, like the size of trees and this and that. But these are the two study sites. This is Lenin Boulevard in Pripyat, and this is Paramoy Avenue in Kiev. And they both have horse chestnut trees of the same age, and there's uh, poplar trees on, the, this is the center of this large street and uh, the horse chestnuts are along the edge. In this case, this is a linear median or a linear park in the middle of a large split street with uh, horse chestnut trees. And we were able to do some increment boring and verify that both populations are of a similar age. And so one thing we could easily do was measure heights of trees and, and their diameters. And we found out that the population in Pripyat was much smaller. And over a period of three years and making these measurements, we were able to also find out that the population in Pripyat is growing much slower. So the trees in Kiev grow faster and the trees in Pripyat grow slower. There is some information in the literature about the effects of gamma radiation on tree growth. Not a lot, but we do have some studies from the zone, particularly Scott's pine, which is cultivated there. And Scott's pine is not a natural forest, but is planted extensively in Ukraine. And we know from these studies in the zone that 
gamma radiation from the Chernobyl explosion stunted the growth of Scott's pines significantly in the zone. And wherever there is more gamma radiation, there is less growth. And indeed, you may have heard of a term called the red forest. Uh, the red forest was an area of Scott's pine where uh, the Western radiation trace cut across it and ended up killing a number of trees along the Western radiation trace. So these trees received a dose of about 20 grays, which is a lot of radiation. And that's a kind of level you would need to kill trees. And, and so a whole swath of trees died from that, that impact. The Western radiation trace is still detectable today. When you drive over it, your dosimeter will sound an alert uh, as you get closer to it, and then it goes away once you passed. So we think it's very likely that horse chestnut trees in Pripyat probably were slowed in their growth and even today are slower in their growth than they are in Kiev. Now we also measured in our recent trips about a 10 time, 10 fold increase of gamma radiation still in Pripyat compared to Kiev. And when we look at some of these things that we're interested in, uh, the architectural quality rating, the, the overall form of the tree was, high, was uh, actually a little bit higher in Pripyat. And the total number of branch defects, of course, was significantly greater in Kiev because nobody was there to damage branches in Pripyat. And of course, the, the number of codominant stems that results from some poor pruning was also significantly greater in Kiev than in Pripyat. And we present these results in the Open Journal of Forestry. You can, anybody can go look at it uh, in 2019. And so trees in Kiev were, were, are, have been, still are being heavily pruned. And there is, I think, poor understanding that this is bad for trees. The huge wound, uh, not well angled, more or less flush cuts lead to cavities and uh, consequent decay organisms like this pleurotus coming in here and fruiting. Of course, those are very edible. But um, in our comparison between these Kiev trees and uh, Pripyat trees, we found that in Kiev, there were 173 large branches removed from the study population we were looking at of 25 trees. And the study population in Pripyat had zero pruning wounds. So these kinds of impacts are, are horrible on trees. And what we've seen in the most recent years is more and more removals. So these trees get uh, further decayed, you see a number of areas where large cuts have been made to raise them up. And eventually somebody decides that a tree is just too dangerous and they take it out. So you see a space here and there's a young tree planted there. And of course here in, in Pripyat, nobody is removing anything, nobody is pruning anything, it's all just staying there. And we see the incursion of all these other weedy species and vines and and a huge mulch layer on the ground. But more than anything, we see a beautifully articulated natural structure for horse chestnut that we don't see in the city 
of Q. Another view, a nice open face or upright structure of a horse chestnut, beautifully structured. Compared to the trees in compared to the trees in Kiev that have been pruned so many times, so many large branches removed, uh, branch faults created multiple branches from one point, co-dominant stems such as here, uh, and and so. The comparison really shows how when arboricultural practice is not top of the notch, is not state of the art, that a population of trees will suffer. We have a few other observations that were very interesting and we were hoping to really look at this in 2020, but uh, we're having to wait now until the pandemic settles down. Hopefully we can go in 2021. But one of the things you notice is that in Pripyat, uh, the trees are covered in lichen. And here you see good evidence of lichen. And in Kiev, there is very little lichen to be found. Of course, lichen uh, seems to tolerate radionuclides well, but not, not poor quality air. And so the, the amount of vehicular traffic in, in Pripyat is almost zero, and uh, except for a few tour, tour vans that go around. Uh, probably more in recent years, but uh, lichen is very common in the nuclear exclusion zone, but not so much in the urban city of Kiev. Another thing that's really amazing is that pruning paints are still a thing, and people paint wounds all over Ukraine on farm trees or urban trees everywhere. And so here's a great example how this was painted for many years and the paint is uh, solidified into a sheet. It's removed and we have some wood decay organisms, probably a Ganoderma or Fomatopsis in here or something, Ganoderma most likely, uh, that has formed inside and underneath the pruning paint. So pruning paints as we know don't, don't retard the development of decay and they certainly don't uh, protect a large wound like this from entrance of these organisms. So um, it's not really been figured out yet in Ukraine that this is the case, I guess. And so they continue to assiduously paint large wounds. So in conclusion, uh, abandonment has served the trees appropriate well in terms of their structure and freedom of defect, they're better off than their urban counterparts in the capital city. Uh, what can be done about this? Well, my colleagues and I held the first arboricultural summit in 2015. I have some good friends who are practicing arborists in Kiev and, and the oblasts around uh, Kiev. And they have come together and I've joined them three times to uh, go to their annual meetings and speak there, or two times at least. And uh, that has continued even in the years I haven't been able to go. And so there's a growing educational group. They have a Facebook page uh, called Ukraine Arborists. And I, if anybody's interested, I can give you the uh, link to that if you are interested in Facebook. And uh, it's a fairly a vital group of interested arborists that are trying to learn 
they're particularly interested in climbing techniques, but also trying to learn more about biology and good practice. So it's our hope that this progress toward arboricultural education is now well underway in Ukraine and that some of the uh, less appropriate pruning work will occur and perhaps the urban forests will improve over time. Uh, I am available at my email, hadowner at ucdavis.edu. And I uh, appreciate any comments you have for me. Thank you very much. This concludes Dr. Jim Downer's talk, Tale of Two Urban Forests, Horse Chestnuts in Kiev and Chernobyl. This talk was originally presented at the 2020 ISA Virtual Conference. The views and information expressed are those of the presenter. Please join us next month for another presentation in the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. Every country treats, you know we can.